grandmother was from the Comoros. She also had a little farm. Um, so she had a little farm and she would buy vanilla from other farmers and then resell it to, um, to, to, to other people. I really have this memory of my grandmother working with the beans. And I was still a kid. Uh, I was, I, don't, I can't remember, I was maybe eight or 10, something like that. But I had no idea what it was. I had no idea what it was. But I remember the smell. The smell of hundreds of vanilla beans at the same place just does not leave you. Up to this day, it's still very nostalgic to smell, to have the smell of vanilla. That's Saeed M. Dahoma, a French Comorian baker based in Calgary, whose grandmother produced and sold vanilla in the Comoros. One time she was talking to me and my mother and she was telling us that one vanilla pod that she will sell it for cents. And when I heard about how low the pro- like that she could not sell it for more than cents, it infuriated me. This is The Sustainable Baker, a podcast miniseries exploring how climate change is going to affect the things we love to bake. I'm Caroline Saunders, and I'm talking to the pastry chefs, the plant breeders, the climate experts, and the bakers who are thinking about dessert in the time of climate crisis, and about how we could bake more sustainably today to keep the future looking sweet. In this episode, we're talking about vanilla. Vanilla holds a strange and contested place in our food culture. For some people, vanilla ice cream with those little black flecks in it is just about as close as you can get to heaven on earth. Or if you've ever been lucky enough to be within sniffing distance of a real vanilla bean, or hundreds like Saeed, you might have just been beamed straight up at first whiff. But for others, vanilla is the bottom of the ice cream flavor barrel, the kind you would order only if the scoop shop is out of everything else. To that group, it's boring by default because it's the original, the basis upon which other flavors build. To them, it's plain. And so many people think that the vanilla has become an insult. Here's how Urban Dictionary defines it. Vanilla, the opposite of kinky, not in any way involved with BDSM. For example, he was a little more vanilla than I was used to, but we got along fine anyway. Contemporary insults notwithstanding... Even if you turn up your nose at this flavor classic, you don't know what plain really tastes like until you've accidentally made a cake or ice cream without vanilla. Its absence can be a rude reminder that this humble extract is the silent workhorse of many of our favorite desserts. It balances the bitterness of cocoa. It can take a pastry cream filling from sickly sweet to delicate and delicious. It plays a supporting role in so many sweet acts that, as long as you like dessert, you probably do like vanilla, even if you don't know it. And odds are, you would notice if it disappeared. Something I didn't know until recently about vanilla is that it's actually a spice. So, in this episode, we're going to ask and answer questions like, how is climate change affecting spices? And will we have vanilla in the future? And how could we build a better future for the farmers on the front lines of climate adaptation? Plus, interviews with a spice expert, a vanilla advocate, a cookbook author, and more from pastry chef Saeed. All that and a recipe to try at home. Here we go. 
In the first episode, I spoke with Amanda Little, a professor at Vanderbilt University and a journalist who's the author of a book called The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World. When I talked with Amanda, she said something that piqued my curiosity and kind of freaked me out. She said there are certain foods that are especially at risk from climate change. Um, they, they're called Goldilocks crops, a specialty crop, even vanilla and certain spices um, that like very specific conditions in which to thrive. Those, as one scientist put it to me, the delicious foods are dying. They're, they're, they're the most vulnerable. As someone who has accidentally left vanilla out of their share of cakes, I know how bad a vanillaless world would be for my baked goods. So I got on a Zoom call with a spice researcher in India who is looking at the effects climate change will have and is already having on spices around the world. Professor A.B. Sharanji is a professor of horticulture at Bidan Chandra Agricultural University in India. He researches, teaches, and has written extensively about spices. When I told him I'd been surprised to find out that vanilla was considered a spice, he gave me this primer. It is difficult to define spices, uh, but uh, I can say uh, it's the dried uh, seeds, roots, uh, bark sometimes uh, used to add flavor, as I have said, flavor, color, pungency, aroma to a dish. Actually, uh, these are the products, uh, high value products, we can say, and uh, low volume commodities. So uh, if you, if you try to find out the root of the word spice, actually it comes from a Latin word species, which means uh, a commodity of value and distinction. It is more a cultural term and very less botanical term. Less a botanical term, because when you actually look at the plant kingdom, the foods we call spices are represented in a whole bunch of different plant families. Spices are simply those plants we humans find flavorful enough to add to our foods for extra enjoyment, or for preservation, or to use in other cultural applications. Spices have for a long time played important roles in medicine, religion, and even birth and death ceremonies. Historical accounts tell us that in ancient Rome, Emperor Nero burned a year's supply of cinnamon in his wife's funeral pyre, which was quite the aromatic way of showing remorse for the fact that he had killed her. Anyway, Dr. Sharanji confirmed what Amanda had told me, that spices are at real risk, much more so than staple crops like grains. But why is that? All the spice crops require specific type of temperature, humidity. Uh, they are grown in a specific altitude and microclimate. Uh, any, any minor deviation in climatic parameters uh, may cause substantial alteration in their yield, quality, productivity. In essence, one of the things that unites the plants we call spices is that they're very needy when it comes to the conditions they require to grow. Wheat, soy, rice are all fairly flexible, but these flavor powerhouses aren't. And with climate change triggering alterations in rainfall, temperature, or wind patterns, sometimes over long periods, the locations that work to grow spices today aren't all going to work in the future. Growing zones are changing, and some spices are going to have to move. There was a study by NASA. Uh, it finds that climate change will change the distribution of plant uh, on nearly half of our planet. And researchers projected 
how the world's vegetation would sift over the next three centuries uh, under the enhanced greenhouse gas uh, emission scenario. The study Professor Sharanji is talking about found that plants will still be here three centuries from now, which, you know, thank God. And for the most part, the types of plants will also remain the same. But it also found that the assemblages of plants, which is to say the specific species that make up a group of plants over a certain area, are likely to shift. And as the plant makeup of different parts of the world changes, some sensitive crops, including some spices, could pay the ultimate price. The few species may show steep decline in uh, population and perhaps become extinct also. Professor Sharanji is concerned about the effects climate change will have on all sorts of spices, from nutmeg to saffron to black pepper. For instance, in certain parts of India, already saffron yields have declined. Cinnamon, too, is at increased disease risk because of heavier rains. And ginger grows at very particular elevations, but as temperatures shift due to climate change, the elevations that once supported its cultivation may no longer. And yes, one spice in very particular danger is vanilla. Yeah, because if vanilla is uh, supposed to get arid situations and violent winds, uh, it is very much detrimental to vanilla. If there is higher rainfall, particularly uh, uh, when when you are going to harvest the ripe fruits of vanilla, uh, if there is rainfall uh, in November to March, so it may damage the fruits. Uh, similarly, if uh, during the fertilization of the flowers, time of fertilization of flowers, if there is less rainfall, particularly in the month of April to October, if there is ra- less rainfall, it slowed the onset of flower buds and fruits. And not only do changes in rainfall patterns stall or damage flowering and fruiting, climatic shifts are also reducing some of vanilla's aromatic compounds. Vanillin. Vanillin is the chemical compound uh, which is present abundantly uh, to to contribute the aromatic compounds, uh, to contribute the vanilla aroma. Uh, This vanilla aroma actually is uh, responsible uh, by the chemicals para-hydroxybenzoic acid and para-hydroxybenzaldehyde and also a little bit of vanillic acid. So these are drastically reduced. Yikes. So, are all spices going to disappear because of climate change? Thankfully, no. As is true of biotic life on Earth generally, the planet will be largely okay in the face of man-made climate change, at least in the sense of the continuation of some life. Plants will go on, mammals will go on, fish will go on, and so on. The question is more about whether specific species will make it. And it just so happens that with spices, that's more of a question than with other types of foods. It's entirely possible that as the planet warms, vanilla could become a part of our past. Cyclone Nawal has struck Madagascar. The cyclone, with winds of 210 kilometers per hour, buffeted the island with heavy rain and high seas. In 2017, Cyclone Inawo hit Madagascar and wiped out enough of vanilla to make prices around the world more than triple to $320 per pound. That was higher at the time than the cost of silver. If you remember how Professor Sharanji describes spices as commodities with high value but low volume, that's a perfect way to describe vanilla. 
80% of the world's vanilla is grown on the island nation of Madagascar, making the global market very vulnerable to local disasters. Vanilla is the world's only edible orchid. Its scientific name is Vanilla planifolia, and its only natural pollinator is thought to be a bee native to South and Central America, where vanilla is also native and was likely first cultivated by the pre-Columbian Maya for use in a cacao drink. Now, vanilla does grow outside of South Central America in a narrow tropical band that encircles the globe, and these days, most production has shifted to Madagascar because the labor there is cheap. But lacking native pollinators, every single vanilla flower that grows in Madagascar has to be pollinated by hand in order for the beans to develop. That hand pollination method was discovered in the mid-1800s by Edmund Albius, a 12-year-old boy who was enslaved on the island of Réunion. After that point, suddenly vanilla was able to be grown in a bunch more places, so more people could taste it and interest shot up. Vanilla beans became a favorite in European and North American baking, so much so that we came up with a new way to get the flavor of these funny little bean pods into foods. Here's Anne Byrne, author of the cookbooks American Cake and American Cookie. Vanilla, vanilla extract was a result of a woman, a patron in, of a, a pharmacy in, in Philadelphia coming back from a trip to Paris and having tasted vanilla, asking her pharmacist, to please make her a syrup or an extract of vanilla so that she could have her cook make uh, vanilla ice cream. You know who else loved vanilla? Thomas Jefferson. While he was in Paris as the American minister to France, he copied down a recipe for vanilla ice cream that is still preserved in the Library of Congress. And over the years, the American obsession with vanilla only grew. In the early 20th century, regulations were set up to prevent food manufacturers from passing off cheaper, synthetically produced vanilla as the more expensive real thing. Yeah, so uh, for some quirk of history, uh, vanilla is the only uh, spice that has its own labeling definition by the FDA. So it's quite tight in its labeling, particularly for ice cream for some reason. Um, so what you're looking for is natural vanilla extract. Um, natural flavoring is something different. That's Don Seville. He's the executive director of the Sustainable Food Lab and co-leads a program called the Sustainable Vanilla Initiative. The strict labeling of vanilla does help distinguish between what are pretty different food products. As we heard Professor Sharanji say earlier, the main flavoring component in vanilla beans is called, appropriately, vanillin. And vanillin can be synthetically derived from plant-based lignin and from petrochemicals. That's what you're getting when you buy, quote-unquote, vanilla flavoring. And that's what makes up the vast, vast majority of the vanilla flavoring market. Just a tiny 2% comes from the natural, real vanilla Don described. But here's where it gets really interesting, and the reason it's gastronomically useful to distinguish between natural vanilla extract and synthetic— in a real vanilla bean, vanillin is the main flavor component, yes, but not the only one. The beans also contain 250 to 500 other flavor compounds. Hence, vanilla's wonderful, delicious, and apparently vulnerable complexity. So, back to the cyclone that almost brought the idea of a future without natural vanilla to fruition. 
To fully understand why vanilla was as susceptible to this storm as it was, we need to understand more about how the vanilla market works. And for that, we're going to talk more with Don. One of the biggest challenges facing natural vanilla is that it's a very volatile market. Um, and that means that, that the supply and prices uh, move up and down a lot over time. And this creates real problems for the farmers and the market. And that's because um, not only does it take a long time for the bean to grow and to cure it, it takes about three years from the time at which you plant a vanilla vine to the time at which the, the beans are, are mature. And that means that we go through cycles where um, as consumers want more natural ingredient, the demand uh, increases for natural vanilla, but there's no way to have supply, new supply online for about four to four and a half years. And so what happens during that time is that people really want natural vanilla and then prices go really high during that period of time. And that causes people to begin planting too much vanilla because those prices stay high for a long time. And then a few years later, buyers have given up a bit because prices have gone very high. And so they start using other sources of vanillin. And so when that new supply comes online, there's not the buyers there. And so that's why we go through cycles of a uh, high price and some of the challenges of farmers making a lot of money, but very high prices in poor countries has a different set of challenges to it. Um, and then by the time that supply responds to pricing and gets online, uh, the buyers have moved on to other sources because they just can't get the vanilla. And then we go through a long period of regrowing the demand because people, customers would love to have natural ingredients where they can have it. Um, and so that's a lot of the work we're doing today at the Sustainable Vanilla Initiative is to think about um, how can we have a market uh, that more consistently can meet the supply of the market and really allow that market to grow. So the timing makes matching supply to demand challenging, but there's something else going on too. I, I think the difference in vanilla is it's just a very, very small crop. Um, so uh, there's no commodities market, there's no complex financial hedging strategies. Uh, it's literally uh, people buying from family businesses, buying from farmers for the most part. Um, so in that way, it's, it's really exciting uh, in that it's, it's a very much a relationship-based business still. Um, and it's a little more challenging because there's not the formal systems of information about pricing, production, supply, demand, et cetera. And that dearth of information makes it harder to get the supply right. So vanilla is a volatile market at the best of times. That was the baseline situation in 2017 when a giant cyclone entered the picture, setting off alarm bells that a new threat multiplier had arrived to this already vulnerable industry. Um, so everybody, even at the grower level, seems quite aware that the changing climate is changing where it's suitable for. Um, most of this is the impact of climate change that Madagascar isn't responsible for. Um, so it's really then about how do we help the farms be more resilient to those changing conditions. And according to Don, one of the best ways to do that is to preserve forest cover, because forests both help moderate rising temperatures and help retain moisture. But that's challenging in a country where deforestation is a major and ongoing issue. 
there's rapid deforestation going on for uh, a number of reasons. Um, the, it's partially clearing uh, for other kinds of agriculture production, like rice production. Uh, it's partially because uh, people are still cooking with open wood fires. So there's a huge demand for firewood. And, you know, Madagascar still has a pretty high growth rate, uh, population growth rate. Um, and the third thing is for, for logging, as there are still some very high value species in there. And there's another reason vanilla needs those forests to stick around. The vanilla orchid's vines loop themselves around other plants and branches. They literally borrow their structure from other plants. And they especially thrive in forests and landscapes that have lots of species. But with forests under continued threat, it really starts to look like vanilla is facing a Pandora's box of issues. Price volatility, hurricanes, climate change, deforestation, I mean, the list goes on. So Don and his colleagues are trying to zoom out and take a bird's eye view of how to build a sustainable future for vanilla. And they think the way to do that is to tackle climate resilience and economic resilience hand in hand. So I guess there's really um, three kinds of resiliency that we worry about. Um, one is the resiliency of the farm itself, wherever it is. Um, and that's really about uh, building soils. So whether it's on um, food crops that farmers are growing, whether it's on the rice production, or whether it's in the vanilla growing plots, um, what are the practices that farmers can follow that really help build up that organic matter in the soil, which sequesters carbon and increases its resiliency to weather and water availability changes? Um, so that's kind of uh, one piece of resiliency that's really important. Um, the second piece is um, uh, crop diversification. So we know that because of climate change, vanilla growing is going to be harder in some areas and better in other areas, but we don't know quite how it's going to play out. Um, so the more that we can encourage farmers to have multiple uh, sources of income, the more they'll be able to survive the variability in their yields and vanilla performance. Um, and then the third area of resiliency is really about the family, um, access to banking to save money, uh, being part of cooperatives which can command better prices, uh, having access to health care and education. Um, that's a really important leg of uh, resiliency. Um, and so we try to pay attention to all three of those legs, the, the farm and crop resilience, um, the diversification to have income resilience, um, and then the um, capacity of the family through education, access, uh, health, to be able to make different choices about their, their futures. But here's the thing. Even if all those aspects of vanilla farming can become more resilient, Madagascar would still be facing the increasing threat of storms like Cyclone Inawo, since climate change makes major storms both more frequent and more severe. Another cyclone could still come along and risk upending the global industry. So, one of the best hedges against climate change is simply to grow vanilla in more places. So, one of the things we've tried to do is also invest in places like Uganda. Um, so, Ugandan farmers, just as an example of alternate origins, Ugandan farmers have more choices than the farmers in rural Madagascar. Uh, there's a vibrant uh, cocoa coffee industry. It's a, a more organized uh, vegetable market into the cities. 
Um, so our theory is if we can nurture some of these additional origins to really succeed in vanilla, which is good for the whole market because it gives it more resilience to cyclones or other uh, impacts in particular areas, that will help lift the floor because the Ugandan farmers need a better return for vanilla to stick with it than the Malagasy farmers do simply because they have more options. So that's another way we're working to try to um, make sure that there's a good base for the vanilla production. That'd be a win for bakers too, a more stable vanilla supply and a less all over the place price. But let's go back for a moment to the relationship between vanilla and forests. Because despite its climate vulnerabilities, you can also argue that in a way, vanilla could be a climate solution. You know, the lesson in a lot of places is that you can't protect forests very effectively unless there's an economic interest so that people are really invested in keeping a forest in place and functioning. Um, and so what vanilla does really well is it provides uh, a crop that goes well in a forest canopy. It's not as diverse as a natural forest, um, but it has been shown to be able to, to provide a habitat extension for lemurs. And it keeps that, that, that shade cover over the soils and that uh, transpiration and respiration cycle uh, going through the trees. So again, it's, you know, ideally it's a buffer. Uh, it creates a buffer zone to the protected forest where families are deeply invested in maintaining and protecting that, that forest coverage. One of my big takeaways from talking to Don is that a truly sustainable future for the natural vanilla industry hinges on making the market more economically appealing to the farmers growing it. And that means figuring out a way to stabilize the price. I think the question is, how do we do that at scale in a way that's uh, sustainable? Um, so one of the things that uh, Fair Trade, for example, has been looking at as an organization is how to provide uh, guidance around what's a fair price for farmers to afford at least a decent standard of living. Um, so they have conducted a uh, reference price analysis for vanilla that does provide guidance there. So there are companies who in those relationships are either buying Fair Trade certification rainforest, organic, um, those all help give some premium. Um, and they're all investing in ways in which farmers can improve their production and earn more money from vanilla. That's a really useful tip if you're wanting to shop in a way that is both environmentally sustainable and economically sustainable for farmers. So look out for those labels and certifications on the vanilla you're buying. Um, harder is how do you have a whole market stay at a stay at a good price for vanilla, particularly when there's more vanilla out there than the market needs, right? Because if what we would consider a good price for vanilla is so attractive relative to the options out there that farmers would continue to invest in in vanilla, um, and so that's where you need good signals and information for the farmers about how much to grow to match what the market needs so that prices will kind of land at that good return point. 
For our part as home bakers, one of the best things we can do is buy products that support fair prices for farmers and that encourage sustainable practices and climate resilient methods of farming. It's got to be said, though, vanilla is just really expensive to begin with. So buying directly sourced or otherwise premium vanilla of any kind, whether organic, fair trade, or Rainforest Alliance certified, is going to be pricey and may not always be possible. But if it's an investment you can periodically afford to make, Saeed, the baker we spoke with at the beginning of the episode, recommends using it in a way that really shows off the flavor and complexity of natural vanilla. What I use vanilla in mostly is pastry cream. For me, pastry cream is the perfect cream for vanilla. Why? Because you can definitely taste the vanilla in that kind of cream. There's, I feel like it's um, it's the best way to enjoy vanilla uh, in a in a baked goods um, because anything else that will be a uh, you know baked in the oven. The the taste fades away if you if you use it in bread or something like that it, it fades away and it's so expensive vanilla is so expensive that I better taste the whole aromatic of vanilla when I when I have a vanilla when I use a vanilla bean couldn't agree more so yeah pastry cream it's really delicious as a filling for shoe puffs or you can line the bottom of a fruit tart with it that's amazing. Honestly, it's also great eaten just straight out of a piping bag, which I saw a friend do recently. You know who you are. So consider this your next lesson in sustainable baking. Go to sustainablebaker.com, click on the latest blog post, and in it, you'll find Saeed's recipe for vanilla pastry cream that you can make at home. This is the Sustainable Baker Podcast. A huge thank you to Professor Sharanji, Don Seville, Anne Byrne, Amanda Little, and Saeed M. Tahoma for their expertise and immense generosity. You should check out all of their work, and you can find links to it on sustainablebaker.com. That's it for now, everyone. Thanks for listening, and happy baking!